There is a crisis in your future. Somewhere along the journey of life, somewhere on the road ahead, a set of circumstances are going to shake your world. The gale force winds of crisis will come screaming into the relative tranquility of life. And you will be managing crisis. Say, thanks pastor, that's what I came to hear today. I'm really thankful for a discouraging message right out of the gate. But listen... My only intention is ultimately to encourage you and to build up your faith in the Lord today. But there is no benefit to us ignoring the reality that crisis comes. We find ourselves in moments that we refer to as crisis management, of seeking to determine the way forward through the midst of a really hard time in life. Like death, living through crisis is not something that we want to think about ahead of time. And yet, as with death, it would be foolish not to prepare our souls for what is, we all know, inevitable. Crisis will come. Now, thankfully, one of the best ways to do this is not, to, is not with morbid anticipation that we sit here and think through what's coming in my future, what will it be, how do I prepare for that, But rather, as God's Word helps us so often, it is through narrative. It is through the story of other people who have gone through crisis. We see how they have gone through it. We see what crisis brings, and we learn from their lives. One such story that I think is worth very careful consideration, an individual I think we should all come to know well, is the king of Judah named Hezekiah. Now, probably every one of us could give more facts about King David, King Saul, maybe Solomon as well. We maybe don't know Hezekiah as well as we should, and I think if we think through the kings of Israel and Judah, we look, would look at Hezekiah as one of the greatest kings. Before we get into his life specifically, and I'm going to look at the more narrow accounting of his life, he's found in three different books, but we're turning to Isaiah uh, chapter 36 today. Isaiah chapter 36. Hezekiah is a man we really need to get to know. And in the next three weeks, I'd like us to do that from the more narrow accounting of his life here, and that's particularly driven just by the number of weeks we have left. Uh, here through the end of the year and what is coming in the schedule ahead. But uh, before we get to the text, let me set Hezekiah in his historical setting. We need to understand the crisis that he faces, but far more than that, to know who this man was and how he points us ultimately to Christ. But as we uh, move into the historical background to know the the, uh, foundations of the account that is before us here, We remember that we're in the divided kingdom. Israel has been split into north and south a long time ago. The northern kingdom of Israel with the capital Samaria that you see here on the map. And then the southern kingdom of Judah and the capital of Jerusalem. Hezekiah's father was named Ahaz. Ahaz reigned for 16 years and he did a really, really rotten job. He was a godless, wicked king. In fact, Ahaz, it seems somewhere along the line, sat down and said, how can I ruin the worship of God? He did so many things to destroy Israel's relationship with the Lord. He went so far 
as to close down the temple. It wasn't even syncretism anymore. The temple was just closed for business. And he set up altars all over uh, Israel, all over Judah and the southern kingdom where the gods of the pagans would be worshipped. His wickedness was epitomized by the fact that he sacrificed some of his sons in the valley of Hinnom in pagan worship. You get that far into paganism to take your own flesh and blood and to send your boys through the fire and to burn them to some god. This is Ahaz. Under his rule, Judah was in the grip of godless pagan practice. And during his reign, the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by the kingdom of Assyria and the people were deported. So not Ahaz and Judah, but the northern kingdom of Israel has seen the Assyrians come in and take everybody away. And they brought other people in and populated Israel with these other people who were also involved deeply in paganism. So to the north, pagan worship has taken over. And under Ahaz's rule in Judah, pagan worship has taken over. That brings us to Hezekiah. Hezekiah, Ahaz's son, becomes king at age 25. Now you put yourself in that situation. You're 25 years of age. This is what's going on to the north in the worship of God. This is what's going on in your own nation that you are now ruling over. And he rules for 29 years. What kind of a king would he be? And we might even ask, what chance does he have? With a father like that, with 16 years of this misery in Israel and and Judah, what's he going to do? But we read this about him from 2 Kings 18. Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. Some of that may be a little confusing to us. We're not fully aware of all that. It's just pagan worship. He destroyed it. Not only said, don't do this anymore. He went to their places of worship and destroyed them. He's undoing what his father Ahaz had done in rebellion against God. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. You remember that bronze serpent that saved the Israelites. Obviously the serpent didn't, God did. But he had them look to that serpent and now in their paganism the Israelites had turned to worshiping this snake. And Hezekiah said, I don't care what its history is. I know what its history is now. This thing is not connected to the worship of God any longer and it's gone. And he took care of it. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. That's quite an endorsement. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. The Assyrian king had taken Israel captive. But Hezekiah stood up to this great power. And because he trusted the Lord, the Lord prospered him and enabled him to do that. 
Hezekiah fought pagan worship and reopened God's temple. He fortified the defenses of Jerusalem. His greatness is even felt to this day by the numerous archaeological remains of his efforts to fortify Jerusalem against enemy attack. You get into the uh, city of Jerusalem today and you're going to know about David. There's evidences of David that's there. You're going to know about Solomon and where the temple was. But you're going to hear a lot about Hezekiah. He, he made some, uh, there, there was uh, an effect that he had that shows itself to this day. There, was a, there is a broad wall that still exists on some level. And you see the kind of snaky thing down there at the lower right corner is where he stopped up the springs that, had, that, that brought water into the city and picked them up inside the city and carved out a tunnel that brought the water into the city so that the city was strengthened against siege. So he's working very hard. We know what was going on with Assyria. It makes perfect sense. But we see to this day the evidences of his labors. Hezekiah's broad wall it wasn't a particularly beautiful wall, but uh, just a whole big pile of stones. That's what's left here. It was much taller, much longer, of course. But you see evidence of Hezekiah was in town, and you know it uh, to this day. His tunnel, many people uh, get a chance to walk through there that are in Jerusalem, enjoy that, but it still brings water into the city. Uh, it's all been changed and the like, but he has. Uh, there was great engineering that took place here and obviously a lot of hard work and a lot of hard workers to carve this right out of the rock. So Hezekiah was a great king. He remains known to this day and there are evidences of his work to this day, but what is most significant is that during his father Ahaz's reign, Ahaz took the Israelites, took Judah, into pagan worship. And during this period of time, though it's said here in the text that Hezekiah stands up to the Assyrian Empire, the Assyrian Empire was putting a tremendous amount of pressure upon him. Hezekiah knew well that his kingdom was in the crosshairs of Assyria's expansionistic interests. And as we come to Isaiah 36... The ruthless Sennacherib has recently been crowned king of Assyria. Now, when a new king ascended to the throne, what was fairly typical was that all of the subject peoples that were on the fringes would say, maybe this is our time to find out if this king really has it, to keep us in subjection. Judah is on the fringes of Assyrian control, and that's exactly what Hezekiah decides to do. I'm going to break away from my submission to Assyria and to this kingdom and test the resolve of Sennacherib to see if it's as strong as his father Sargon too. Well, how do you think Sennacherib responded? I mean, what is that? My daddy can do it, but I can't control Judah? That really irritates him. And he comes down into Judah and begins to lay siege to the cities of Judah. It's a very difficult time for Judah. Sennacherib is not really worried at all about tiny little Judah and her tiny little army. What really worries him is the powerful Nubian king, Terhaka, who recently conquered Egypt. So thinking down to the south and perhaps coming up along the coast, Egypt could invade the land and cause all kinds of trouble to Sennacherib. 
Let me just give a couple of pictures here, a couple of maps and pictures that kind of show us this, the lay of the land and the setting here. Remember this area, this Shvela, uh, this uh, lowlands, these foothills that sort of run uh, up between the plain on the sea of Philistia and the hill country where Jerusalem, the capital of the nation, is situated. So there's these passes down through the foothills that connect the way of the sea where, where the, where the, the uh, uh, nations would have traveled, the armies were traveling uh, along the coast there where it's flat. But they can move their way in inland into the highlands to Jerusalem. So it served as a buffer zone then between Jerusalem and the Philistines and now in this case the Assyrians. The Israelites fought all kinds of people here. Uh, you see kind of a graphic here, uh, perhaps can pick it out somewhat. You see these foothills, you're not going to go over hill and dale. Uh, you're going to walk down between the hills and make your way through. It kind of looks something along these lines. And, and I point you here to what exists today of Lachish. There is a fortified city that controlled one of the major passes between the plains, the, uh, where, where the sea is, and Jerusalem in the highlands. So this was a very, very significant city controlling a pass that would have been uh, given up at the expense of Jerusalem's safety. Sennacherib comes from the north and from the east, down through the land, down the coast, and is laying siege to Lachish. It gave him a controlling position to withstand Terhaka from the south and Egypt as well. Now, while Sennacherib lays siege to Lachish, Hezekiah sees the trouble he's in and he pleads terms of peace. He says to Sennacherib, essentially, I see my error. You are powerful enough. There's nothing I can do. I'll pay tribute. And Sennacherib responds by imposing a hefty financial penalty on Hezekiah. But while he's besieging Lachish and Jerusalem to the east and up in the hills, Sennacherib says, wait a minute, this isn't good enough. My father got tribute from Judah. Judah rebelled against me and now I've just gotten tribute back. What do I get for all of my trouble? And he started to think, you know, I think really now that I've got my army here, this is time. I'll have to watch for Egypt to the south, but this is my time to take over Judah just like we took over Israel some time before. So during this siege, Sennacherib has a change of heart, sends a sizable portion of his army with a delegation of officers to Jerusalem. And they arrive and they call for Judah's unconditional surrender. This is a crisis. You've got the army there in the land. You've got representatives of the Assyrian king knocking on your gate and saying, give up. That changed Hezekiah's day. Now, there were certainly dangers in the past and all kinds of difficulties that he dealt with, but this was a new crisis. And we pick it up here in Isaiah 36, and we'll go through this fairly quickly, uh, a significant stretch of text, but we'll, we'll work our way through. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Sennacherib claims that he took 46 cities, 46 walled cities, and innumerable unwalled communities in Judah. 
Verse 2 describes the delegation, the sizable army that Sennacherib sent to Jerusalem while he's there at Lachish laying siege. And the king of Assyria, verse 2, sent, to, sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish, this uh, army official, to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. The conduit or aqueduct might be, well, whatever. There's water coming into the city here. But we need to remember that Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, stood at this very location when he was challenged by the prophet Isaiah under very similar circumstances. The enemy was different. It was Syria and it was Israel allied against Judah. But Isaiah talked to Ahaz right here and said, I'll protect you. Ask of me a sign. You remember this? Ahaz foolishly refused. I won't ask for any sign, claiming that he didn't want to test God. What was really the case is he wanted to lean on Assyria, irony, on Assyria to protect him from Syria and Israel. You remember the prophet gives him a sign anyway. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And, and, he, and he refuses here, Ahaz refuses to work with Isaiah and to work with God. He's going to work with things his own way. Remember this. I'll deal with my enemies by making alliances with other people and I'll take care of myself. Ironically, Hezekiah is challenged by the very kingdom with which his father Ahaz sought an unholy alliance. Now that kingdom is in the land and saying, you're done. It's a major crisis. And verse 3, there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, these representatives, to communicate with Sennacherib's delegation. One of them, the Rabshakeh, tries to persuade Hezekiah to surrender to Sennacherib without a fight. So the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the king, the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? That's a crucial question to the narrative. On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? You can't win this thing with propaganda and speech. Here's my army, you see them, now what are you going to do? Behold, verse 6, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. It's going to get you nowhere to depend on Egypt. They're not going to bail you out. You have to deal with us. We're at your gates. Verse 7, but if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? He's completely confused. He doesn't know that Hezekiah has done exactly what was right and has now secured the favor of God for the nation. He just is saying, I mean, you know, this king's doing all these horrible things to you and, and he's destroying the support of the gods of the land.
Come now, verse 8, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able to put on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? You can't put horsemen on. They didn't have chariots and horsemen. They had to depend on Egypt. He says, Egypt's not going to show up here. It's mockery. Verse 10, Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, Go up against this land and destroy it. We don't know what that means. If he's heard what was prophesied to Isaiah, or if the Lord has spoken to him, or if he's just speaking for God, but he boasts to have God on his side, that he will destroy the land. In response, verse 11, Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. Aramaic was the language that they would speak officially to understand between nations, but the common people would not understand that they'd be speaking Hebrew and would not be able to discern this intimidation and propaganda that's being spoken. And what do you think the Rab Shekah says? Verse 12, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall? These men who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine. Lovely thought. What's the point? We're going to lay siege to this city. They're acknowledging they're not going to get in easily. But we're going to starve you out. There will be nothing left to eat but your own excrement. This is propaganda at great heights. Verse 13. The Rabshakeh, instead of being speaking in Aramaic, now stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Being honest with them, you're not going to live here anymore. It's not so bad where I'm taking you. You get along there pretty well. You'll like it. And who's going to deliver you? The word deliver occurs seven times in verses 13 through 20. It's a key emphasis. He continues, Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his, hand, this, his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? That is a direct assault against the God of Israel. And notice here also what is so common. Worldly pressure almost always comes with a promise of ease. The ease from the pressure and benefits provided by giving in to what the world desires. You're going to have much to eat. You'll be in a good position. The pressure will be gone. 
And Hezekiah, he can't deliver you. God himself is against you, he says. Verse 19, where are the gods of Hamath? I mean, let's talk history here. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Shepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? I've got history on my side. But they were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's command was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joe, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. Now, they didn't know what those words were going to be when the army came in. It might have been. We've accepted these terms, or we're going to ask a little bit more in tribute, and then we're going to go home. But as Hezekiah filters this, he realizes crisis has just hit. This is a devastating turn of events for Hezekiah and Judah. His world has come crashing down upon him. One author says there was a ferocity and ruthlessness about the Assyrians that the eastern Mediterranean had never seen before and which has probably not been surpassed since, at least on a grand scale. Humanly speaking, there was no hope for Hezekiah and Judah. What will he do? We see a crisis. We see also then in chapter 37 a sovereign Savior. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. This was a prosperous man. This was a great king. This was a man who knew some engineering and had made some unique advances in Jerusalem. But here, he comes down to great fear, to great sorrow of heart. He caves into it. In humility, he tears his clothes. It's also, I think, an act of faith in God, but he goes to the house of the Lord, the house that he had opened. And verse 2, he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, secretaries and, uh, the secretary and the senior priest covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth and there is no strength to bring them forth. That's a figure of speech saying we have no power. What are we going to do here? We're in bad, bad shape. Verse 4, it may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of this Rabshakeh whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. They come now with prayers before the Lord. Hear is a figure of speech, of course, and means to act. It may be that the Lord hears, that is, the Lord will act and judge them. At issue is not that Israel must survive at all costs, but the, the, the fact that the Assyrians are mocking the living God. You remember, we looked last week at King David. This is what moved David onto the national scene, was to see the enemies of God mocking him. And so these counselors of Hezekiah, 
are saying, perhaps God will so respond. Perhaps He will contend for His name. Let's pray and trust that God, the living God, will come to our aid and do something here. Verse 5, when the servants of the king Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Wow, and that's a good word. Sennacherib will not destroy Judah, declares the sovereign God who rules over the kingdoms of the world. Sennacherib desperately wants to destroy Judah and has the power to do so. But God will dial up a set of circumstances that is going to send Sennacherib scurrying home. There's no way God can say this without knowing the history that is to come. He sees the future, he knows what's going to take place, and he assures Hezekiah, you're fine. Ironically, he who mocked Hezekiah for depending on mere words will return to Assyria because of a rumor. But first, verse 8, the Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Lachish has fallen, and now he's gone to another uh, secure, walled uh, city, that uh, small village, but it's walled and He's taking that on now so that he can gain full access with all of his army right to Jerusalem. Now the king heard, and here's the word that the prophet had spoken. Now the king heard concerning Terhaka, the king of Cush. He has set out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah king of judah do not let your god in whom you trust deceive you by promising that jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of assyria don't be that dumb now this is a direct assault against the glory of god and that's dumb but behold he says verse 11 you have heard what the kings of assyria have done to all the lands devoting them to destruction and you shall be delivered have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, the people of Eden who were in Telassar. Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Shepharvaim, the king of Hina of the king, and the king of Iba? Well, how does Hezekiah respond? He knows this is the truth. He knows that what this man has said is true. They're not going to go away. They're going to be back. This is really bad news. And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers, verse 14, and read it, and Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord. And he spreads the letter out there before the Lord, and Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, You are the God, You alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline Your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open Your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. God, this is about You. It's about Your reputation. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to all the nations and their lands. What he says is true. 
And they have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. And now, O Lord, our God, save us from His hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that You alone are the Lord. What is it that drives Hezekiah here? What drives him is the reputation of God, and there's a, there's a very valuable truth there. The glory of God's name is the supreme issue. And he brings prayer to the Lord, not just pleading with Him, not just desperate to get away, but rather pleading with God to contend for the glory of His own name. This is how prayer should be turned and its significance in our lives. Now, remember, Hezekiah is surrounded by godless people, by pagan nations all around, tempted to form alliances with nations that were unfaithful to God. Certainly, that's what Hezekiah is facing here. But he turned not to pagans. He turned not to an alliance of another nation. Where does he turn? He turns to the prophet Isaiah who can deliver the word of the Lord and he turns in prayer to God. Dependent trust in the midst of unbelievable circumstances. The truth is that we have nowhere else to turn. And there's nowhere better to turn in times of crisis than to turn to the Word of the living God, the truth that He has revealed. Our temptation is so often to ally ourselves to the world and to its answers. So when we face times of crisis, it is a moment of a crisis of faith. It's obvious in moments of calm and peace that we should trust the Lord. But at times of difficulty and trial, that gets much more challenging. I think we learned then. Let me pause here just for a few moments and consider and think. Allow this to filter into your mind, into your soul, and to be sanctified by God's revealed Word. Times of crisis happen and they are not necessarily a direct result of some particular sin in our lives. Hezekiah did not ask for this. Hezekiah had not done anything that deserved this crisis particularly. The text is not written to tell us, here's what God did to judge Hezekiah. Previous chapters tell us precisely this when it comes to Israel. God is judging Israel for her sin because she has abandoned God. That is not the case with Hezekiah, and yet the trial comes. There are times when God brings judgment into our lives, the direct response to our sin, but there are many times when that's not particularly the case. The crisis comes, the trial comes, and it's not through any particular fault of our own. Secondly, times of crisis reveal what our heart is trusting at the time of crisis. Will we depend upon the Lord or depend upon our own schemes to address the crisis? That is one of the questions. Am I going to depend here on the Lord? But hear me, and this is why in part... Perhaps by God's sovereign providence, you are here today. To remember, this isn't just a word to be given to us that we remember to put into practice when we get into the crisis. 
the word here is who are you trusting now? Where is your hope and your confidence in the day-to-day life when times are peaceful? That's what's going to come out when you enter into the crisis. It's not that Hezekiah suddenly decided, you know, I think now's a good time to seek the Lord. Hezekiah had been seeking the Lord. He had been faithful to Him. He had worshipped Him alone. And in the moment of crisis, he turned where his heart was leaning. He turned toward what was going on in his relationship with the Lord all along. And it's, it's, it's frustrating to people and it's frustrating to prophets like Isaiah when people come who have not been trusting at all in the Lord and now in the midst of crisis say, I've got to get everything turned around and straightened out. Trusting the Lord one day at a time is fitting you to handle the crisis that is to come. And when that crisis comes, it will squeeze out of you what's really in your soul. We can't get everything figured out while the crisis is hitting. And running to sources of help and information that conflict with what God has revealed is the natural response of a heart that's not been depending on Him all up to that point. And so if I'm enamored by the world's counsel, I'm enamored by the world's ways, as Ahaz was, then when I get in the midst of crisis, that's where I go for help. Ahaz went where? He went to Assyria for help. I don't need the Lord's prophet. I don't need to ask for a sign. I don't need to cooperate with Isaiah here. I've got Assyria. Hezekiah had the Lord. He had the Lord going in to the crisis. Thirdly, in times of crisis, godly people, and above all else, God's promises are vital sources of stability. So much hinges on 37.6, thus says the Lord. We know, obviously, Hezekiah got a word directly from the Lord that was really, really good news. But there is no crisis that we will ever face, though we may not gain a direct word from God in that sense, There is no crisis we will ever face as individuals or as a church where there is no word from God to trust. It may not be that specific, but it will be all that we need. It will provide for us all that we need to endure the crisis. The word is a source of hope and grounding clarity in any crisis. It is the word of the Lord that I will never leave you or forsake you. That I will work all things together for good. And I, we're being counseled. I've been counseled this week from the Washington Post that we should not say those things in church. Because Americans don't want to hear that anymore. They don't want to hear that God is a rock They don't want to hear that there's a purpose in their suffering. They just want people to empathize with them, and that's enough. Well, we need to be compassionate people, and we need to be above all the world in demonstrating grace and compassion in times of crisis. May they look to us as an example. But we're giving up the ship if we stop saying, God, 
is a source of sovereign authority over all the crises of life. Yes, we can't figure it out. Yes, we're not able to give answers that say, this is how God's purposely working this out in your life and you need to just trust Him. Of course. But let's not throw everything out. And let's remember that there is a God who rules sovereignly and His Word is authority in every crisis. Hold to it. Cling to it. Know that it is truth. And one more point. There is an assault against God's kingdom all the time. And if you are serving His kingdom, hostile forces will oppress you from time to time. But I think we need to set our thoughts on the fact that Jesus will reign. In such times, it's vital that we look long and fix our eyes on the establishment of the ultimate kingdom of Jesus Christ. In such times, it's vital that we so position ourselves that anyone reviling us is reviling God. It doesn't mean we'll be given safety like Hezekiah has been promised. It's a dangerous place to be when hostile forces come against you. But it's far more dangerous to be opposed to the Lord. It's a dangerous place to be to rest in God alone and His Word, but it's the safest place to be. Because there is coming a day when the perfect King, the all-powerful King, the last King on earth will claim His throne in Jerusalem there's coming a day when he will set the world right with perfect justice and holiness and trusting this king depending on his on this sovereign Lord is our life it is our hope in every crisis and in ultimate victory and vindication with eyes set on that future any crisis that comes we have a rock we have a source of hope We have a source of strength. We need to know that and remember that. So Hezekiah, little tiny nation, small army, no chariots, no horses, big, big trouble. But he throws his dependence on the Lord of hosts. You ever seen this picture? I've seen seen this before. I thought of it in light of this, uh, this situation cat and few times in my illustrations are the cats the heroes but uh, I ask forgiveness of all who judge me for that but Hezekiah is the cat I don't know what's going on with those German shepherds but they're clearly being trained right and that cat is you and me when crisis comes it's not about what's in us And our hope is not in our strength or in the world's ways. Our hope is in the God who controls the circumstances and who rules as sovereign authority over all that happens. Whatever crisis I face, I can be at peace. There is a sovereign Lord who loves His people. Whatever crisis I face, I must trust Him and rest in Him and doing that right now today, we know this account. Many of us have read it before. We've considered it in a different light not all that long ago. But as we allow the truth of God's Word to nurture and strengthen and filter our soul, right here there is a place, a call upon each of us. Will you 
trust this Lord today? Will you say in your heart, in your soul, He's trustworthy? I can depend on Him. He's the Lord who can keep the German shepherds in line. He's the Lord who can keep the Assyrian army in line. He's the Lord who can do anything that He wants to do so that anything that happens to me, as hard as it may be, and while it may even take my life, I can be at rest and peace. Do you believe in that God? Do you know Him personally? There may be some among us who have not come to understand that Christ reigns today. He reigns because He's defeated death. And He's defeated death because He gave His life on the cross in the place of sinners to take our place, to pay the penalty of our sin and to give us life in His name. This King, having defeated sin, is the one who reigns and will return and who rules sovereignly over this earth and all that happens in it and will for eternity. Coming to this One is the invitation if you reject this, say that's a myth, that's a story, that's, I, can, I can see right through that, that's just ridiculous. The reason you say that is because you're blind to the truth and you're running to the world's solutions. And there will be a day of crisis that comes and I guarantee you that day of crisis will reveal that your gods stink. They're useless. They'll leave you empty and dry They'll shrivel your soul. They will not support and strengthen you in the moment of crisis. They can bring pleasure in the moment. The philosophies, the sources of pleasure, the sense of support of the world that surrounds you, but come to the crisis and they'll leave you absolutely empty. But come to the Lord of heaven and earth and there will be a source of never-ending joy and of unflagging power. If we can point you to Him, we can't sell it, we can't give it to you, we can't open blind eyes, but He can. And I would encourage you to come today as we break from here and to talk with someone and say, show me from the Bible who Jesus is and what that's got to do with me. And we'll be able, by the grace of God, to introduce you to the King of kings and Lord of lords who will manage every crisis in your life and in this world with all the sin and trial and heartache. He'll manage it until He rules. And all is made right. Let's bow for prayer. We thank You, Father, for the privilege to consider Your Word and to know that it points us to be the people that You want us to be. Do a unique work here among us, I pray, by Your Spirit. Draw Your people to sanctifying strength. Draw those who are not Your people at this point to that place where they discern the call of salvation upon their heart. We will thank You for what You're pleased to do as we pause here to thank You for Your strength, Your power, and your loving protection of your people. We do face crisis. We're not immune. There's people here that are facing heartaches that are impossible even to describe. But we pause here to thank you that you are a sovereign God who loves us and who has an end game. 
And in that end, your name will be magnified and those who have trusted you will be vindicated and will be filled with joy in your presence for eternity. We trust in this. We rest in it. We live this day in light of that coming day and pray that all who are here would come to that position in their life and that we would be trusting you right now. We pray this in the name of our Savior. Amen. Please stand. And in the silence of your own heart, consider who you're trusting in. Consider what you're trusting in. Perhaps for you right now is a time of peace. You're trusting in something.